So Genesis chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hurah. There Judah met with the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as the brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hera, the Dolomite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Inim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought he was, she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her in the middle, to the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent his young goat, the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, in order to give his pledge back from the woman but he did not find her. He asked the man who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road of Enim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides the man who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her the young goat but you didn't find her. After three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize who 
whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, The one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. Amen. This weekend we have been greatly blessed um, to have Simon um, and his family here. And Simon's been bringing to us um, stories throughout the book of Genesis, and we've been um, greatly um, helped and encouraged. Um, But before Simon comes to um, preach in this passage, um, let's turn to God in prayer. Good to see you all again tonight, and uh, I think there must be a few extras here, so welcome to you if you're here for the first time or visiting us this evening. Uh, We've been working our way through the second half of Genesis, looking at uh, some particular chapters along the way, and uh, we're we're tonight in Genesis chapter 38, which is uh, the chapter we just read, and um, if uh, you've got one of those sort of outlines, this talk is called The Sin Revealed. It's the fourth in the the series. If you don't have one of those outlines of the talk, there may be someone near you who can let you look on or something like that. If you were here this morning, you will remember uh, from Genesis chapter 37 that the chapter ended with the main character of these chapters, Joseph, being sold as a slave in Egypt to a man named Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials. And if you were to read on, as I hope you will sometime, into Genesis chapter 39, you'll see that that chapter opens with Joseph working in Potiphar's house. And that leaves us with Genesis chapter 38 stuck in the middle. And that's the passage we have in front of us this evening. It makes no mention of Joseph whatsoever and doesn't seem to advance the main action of the story of Joseph's life at all. It concerns itself instead with one of Joseph's brothers with Judah. So why is it here? It seems like just a break in the narrative. What's it doing between chapters 37 and 39? We ought to assume that the author of Genesis didn't just make a cut and paste error when he put this here. So if the author of Genesis wanted to place Judah's story exactly where he did, there must have been a reason. What is that reason? That's really the $6 million question for this evening and and what I hope to achieve over the next half an hour is is both an understanding of what's going on in this chapter but also an understanding of why it is here and what it means for us. But let's, let's begin by trying to make sense of the story itself. The first thing we learn about Judah here is that he leaves his brothers and he decides to go and stay with a chum called Hira down in Adullam and there he meets a young woman who he marries. We don't know her name, simply that she's the daughter of a guy called Shua. Together they have three sons. So far, so good. Apart, perhaps, from the name they give their third son, Sheila. Now, I don't know about over here, but back in Australia, (laughs) that's a girl's name. And it's even the name Aussie males often give in a derogatory fashion to men who are seen to be acting like women, as in, stop carrying on like a Sheila. It's, uh, (laughs) It's terrible, really, but... 
It's clear to every Australian reader of Genesis 38 that Judah's third son wouldn't have lasted long in an Aussie school playground <laughs> with that name. That's probably beside the point. The narrative goes on in verse 6 to tell us that Judah gets his firstborn son married off to a woman named Tamar, but his firstborn son, appropriately named Ur, makes a big mistake. We're not sure how or why, but whatever he does is deeply offensive to God and the Lord simply snuffs his life out. Verse 7, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. And so, as was the custom in that time, Judah does the honourable and the expected thing and offers his second son to Tamar, presumably in marriage. It seems this was the custom in order to provide for the widowed woman and also to ensure that the family line of the firstborn son would continue. But Judah's secondborn, a chap called Onan, meets with the same fate as his elder brother. His behaviour is an offence to God and the Lord puts him to death as well. This time, though, we know what it was that he did wrong. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfil your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his... So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. It seems Onan was more than happy for the sex, but just not for making babies. So he was practising a very basic form of contraception, and the way he treats Tamar is incredibly selfish, to say the least. Now, down through the centuries, church leaders have used this passage to speak against both masturbation and, at other times, contraception. People have taken God's condemnation of Onan here to be a firm word against the spilling of semen on the ground at any time and in any circumstance. People have even invented a word to go with this teaching. They've called it Onanism. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but I want to say for the record tonight that I think using this passage to condemn either masturbation or contraception is a big stretch. Contraception and masturbation are both important issues and the Bible may have things to say about them in other places, but I just don't think the Bible's saying anything about them here. Onan's sin is not the act of letting his semen fall to the ground per se, but it's, let, it's letting his semen fall to the ground in this context when he had an obligation to fulfil. And when he should have been serving Tamar's interests and the interests of his family and not just his own desires. If there is such a sin as onanism, it's really self-absorption and a lack of love. But then we discover that Judah himself is guilty of a similar lack of love for Tamar and perhaps a similar self-absorption. He acknowledges in verse 11 what the culture of his day would have considered his duty to now give Tamar his third son as her husband. Now, this might seem strange to us, but it was apparently commonplace in those days. In fact, in years to come, God's own law for the Israelites would lay out a similar procedure to the one imagined here. You can read it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And in that chapter, it is clear that the responsibility of a man's brother to their sister-in-law, if he were to die, is as much about preserving the oldest brother's family line as anything else. But as Tamar's actions in this story demonstrate to us, it was a matter of survival for the woman concerned as well. Her livelihood depended on this practice, on her dead husband's brothers honourably fulfilling their duty. 
And, and no doubt the family patriarch had a significant role to play in this too, like Judah here. And verse 11 makes it clear that Judah was not unaware of his responsibilities. And yet he also acknowledges here that his youngest son, Shelah, is not yet old enough for this kind of thing. So Judah promises Shelah to Tamar when he's older. Meanwhile, he sends her back to her own father's house to wait. But the text also tells us what was in Judah's mind as he did that. So let me read you verse 11. It says, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. It seems he thought Tamar was like a curse on his family. He was worried that if his third son was married to Tamar, he might die as well. Already here we have the indication that Judah's resolve to actually go through with his pledge to Tamar was weak, to say the least. And verse 26, later in the chapter, actually confirms for us from Judah's own lips that his ultimate failure to give Shelah to Tamar was more than mere forgetfulness. In verse 26, he says he wouldn't give her to his son. At the end of the day, Judah fails to provide for his daughter-in-law, Tamar. At the end of the day, his promise falls to the ground, not unlike Onan Seaman. The father is just like the son, more concerned for himself than for this vulnerable woman. And it's her vulnerability, her her desperate vulnerability, that leads Tamar into the deception that she performs some years later. Tired of waiting for Judah to come through and suspecting the worst of him, the treatment she has received finally gets the better of her. And we must appreciate here that she has been driven to these great lengths by the men of this family that she has regrettably married into. She was a victim before she was the one taking matters into her own hands. But take matters into her own hands, she most certainly does. And victim or not, we mustn't in any way excuse her calculating and destructive entrapment. In fact, perhaps one of the most tragic things in this whole story is that the ugly DNA of this family has seemingly rubbed off on her. Deception runs deep in the history of this family, as we've seen again this weekend. You remember, Isaac was deceived by Jacob, chapter 27. At the end of chapter 37, we saw this morning that Jacob was then deceived by his sons, including Judah. And now here we see that Judah himself is deceived. With each new generation of men in this family, the deceiver becomes the deceived. And it's fascinating how the writer of Genesis points out little things each time in order to help us connect the dots. In each of these cases of deception, there is, curiously, a garment and a goat involved, as we saw this morning. And it's the same again here. And to be honest, Judah doesn't even put up a fight. He's so easily deceived, it's almost laughable. Really, it's a disgraceful indictment on Judah that Tamar has such confidence that this trap would work. She doesn't seem to be in any doubt that if Judah was walking along the road at one day and happened to see a prostitute, that the rest would be history. And the rest is history. Disguised as a prostitute associated with a local Canaanite fertility religion, Judah sleeps with her and gets her pregnant. And now she is holding all the cards. Or to be more precise, the seal, the cord and the staff. 
if you remember from the reading. In lieu of payment, he leaves these distinguishing marks of his personal identity with her. It would be the ancient equivalent of leaving your driver's licence and your credit card. And, and try as he does to get these back afterwards by sending the goat he'd promised as payment, Judah's identifying belongings are now lost to him and they are in Tamar's possession and she cannot be found. And then three further months pass and now Tamar is beginning to show and her pregnancy is becoming public knowledge. But understandably, this is a scandal. She's still officially betrothed to Sheila, to Judah's son. She's certainly not married and it's even become known that Tamar is pregnant by prostitution. And I reckon it's hard to avoid the conclusion that Tamar perhaps leaked that little bit of information out herself. And then Judah hears of it. And in what must be the most horrific moment in a chapter full of horrific moments, Judah takes the moral high ground and speaks up as an offended and disgraced father-in-law. At the end of verse 24, he publicly calls for her to receive the death penalty for her crime. And of course, in the society of the day, the father-in-law is the one with all the power and so the powerless Tamar is immediately brought out to be burned as Judah has demanded she be. But all of a sudden, the great twist in the story arrives and the powerless one becomes instantly powerful. She plays her cards. She sends a messenger to Judah with his seal and cord and staff and a simple question. Do you recognise these? It's the powerful question of the chapter. And I hope you noticed how similar it is to the powerful question at the end of the previous chapter, 37-32. Back there, Jacob was presented with his son's technicolour coat and asked, do you recognise this? And the parallel here is another clever reminder to us that sin has a way of coming back and biting you. It's another reminder to us that this family has spun a wicked web of deceit in every generation and every generation ends up ironically being caught in it. And Judah is well and truly caught here. His seal, cord and staff have become the ancient version of a modern paternity test. His DNA is all over this. It's immediately obvious to everybody that he is the father. There's nowhere for him to hide. He's he's well and truly busted. The one who called for death for the prostitute is now publicly exposed as having engaged in prostitution himself. The one who self-righteously called for his immoral daughter-in-law to be punished is now publicly revealed to have had sex with his own daughter-in-law. Tamar's deceit couldn't have worked better if it had been scripted by Brookheimer. She's nailed Judah. And his credit, or perhaps to the credit of God who is working in his life, Judah responds with humility. So verse 26, Judah recognised them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. And this is perhaps the only holy moment in a chapter riddled with unholiness. In fact, given that the the Judah we see in later chapters, is a much more mature, more selfless man. What we're observing here may just be the beginnings of a real reformation in his life. But whether or not that's the case, we certainly see in Judah here a willingness to acknowledge 
not just that he's been caught, but that he really has been a sinner. He sees what lengths his selfishness has driven Tamar to. He recognises the unrighteousness of keeping Sheila from her. And then, perhaps strangely to us, the chapter ends with what happens a further six months down the track. Tamar, it turns out, is pregnant with twins. The midwives who looked after her in labour knew that she was having twins and they also knew, it seems, how important it was to remember which one was born first. Firstborn son in those days, as you know, had all the privileges. They were the major inheritors of their father's estate and they were treated differently to the other children. So I presume that's why the scarlet thread is used. Look at verse 28. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name Zerah. So Zerah and Perez are born. Zerah comes out with the scarlet thread around his wrist, but Perez is actually the firstborn, as later history makes clear. It's hard not to see the echoes here of the Jacob and Esau birth narrative back in chapter 25. In that situation too, the twins jostled with one another in the womb, you remember. And then after they were born, even though Esau was the firstborn, it's Jacob who ends up receiving all the privileges of being the firstborn. And I suppose what we're meant to see here is that there's a kind of illegitimacy in this family line. Jacob is an illegitimate firstborn and so too Perez in some respects. Yet God is working out his purposes through these illegitimate firstborn sons as if he had the whole thing mapped out from the beginning. And that leads us, of course, to ask what we need to ask with all these chapters, not not just what the story is with the human characters on the stage of history, but also what the divine story is which sits above the human story and lies underneath it. What's God doing here? What's God teaching us here? From God's perspective, why is this chapter here? Well, there are four things I want to draw your attention to this evening. The first is the question of righteousness. And verse 26 introduces this theme to us. There Judah recognises that Tamar had been more righteous than he. Wouldn't be hard, would it? I'm not sure that ought to lead us to the conclusion that Tamar was particularly righteous either. Much like chapter 37, this is really a most unrighteous tale. And I think it's easy to watch it unfold as we might watch a movie and not be overly phased by what we're watching. When we read it, it's like it seems distant and almost fictional. But the terrible thing, of course, is that it's not fictional. And I reckon if we heard a story like this about people we knew today, we'd be shocked and and probably disgusted. This is a story of neglect and abuse and sexual immorality and deception and desperation and great shame. And Tamar may be more righteous than Judah, but that's not saying much. As far as the human characters go, I think we'd have to say that there's no one righteous here. In contrast to this, in the very next chapter, we're going to see how righteous Joseph was when faced with sexual temptation. 
but, but there are no holy heroes here. The only one to act righteously in this chapter is God. We noticed this morning that the, the name of God didn't appear anywhere in chapter 37. And he's not exactly a major player in the narrative of chapter 38 either. But he does appear. He appears in verse 7 and again in verse 10 to put Judah's first two sons to death. God acts righteously to punish wickedness, to remove from this story two men who were evil in his sight. And I think we're meant to see the stark contrast between the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of every other character. And we are meant to perhaps see something of ourselves in the unrighteousness of the characters here and to praise God for his righteousness. But that does raise the question, doesn't it, about how Tamar and particularly Judah avoid a similar fate. If God is righteous and acts righteously here to dispense with evil people, how is it that Judah and Tamar find themselves alive at the end of this chapter? Why is it that Ur and Onan get zapped but their father escapes the Lord's judgment in this chapter? Well, that leads to the second thing we ought to say tonight about the divine story in this chapter because alongside the demonstration of God's righteous judgment here is also the showing of mercy. And really, there's no other explanation for why Judah and Tamar are still living at the end of this chapter. And not only living, Tamar, of course, actually gets what she sought so manipulatively to obtain, a family. The birth of her children at the end of this chapter is an incredible testament to God's mercy. She is granted these sons despite the terrible way she approached it. And Judah shares in the blessing too. In fact, as the rest of Genesis unfolds, we find that Judah receives... Even more blessing. In fact, he ends up being more greatly blessed than perhaps any of his brothers. And when you remember chapter 38, that really is astonishing. And I think it's for that reason especially that chapter 38 is here because it makes it crystal clear that any blessing Judah receives can only be by mercy. He doesn't deserve to be blessed at all. So any preferment he enjoys in years to come is not a crown for his achievements. It is grace despite his failures. And this chapter stands as an unyielding testimony to that, to the showing of mercy. And as those who, whilst different to Judah, still share his DNA, we're reminded by this chapter that any blessings we enjoy are not a crown for our achievements, but grace despite our failures. But the chapter also stands as a testimony to the limits of human wisdom. And this is the third thing to say tonight about the divine story in this chapter. Because as we saw this morning, the colourful story of this colourful family is the most unlikely setting for the fulfilment of the purposes of God. And yet it's in the midst of all this ugly sin and foolishness that, that God is working out his plans And that's because God is working out his plans in ways we would not expect. And in particular, I think this is the significance of the final four verses of chapter 38. Because when the midwives tie that scarlet thread on Zerah's wrist, they are signifying who will be the firstborn son, the one through whom the family line will primarily be passed. 
but they got it wrong. And I actually think that that's a little microcosm of what's going on throughout all these chapters. We keep discovering that God chooses the most unlikely of characters to fulfil his purposes. He seems to be working through illegitimate firstborns and terrible sinners. If we'd been choosing who he'd most likely use to accomplish his work, we, like those midwives, would have most certainly gotten it wrong. Human wisdom, you see, is limited. God's wisdom is beyond ours. He thinks things through in ways we wouldn't predict and in ways we frankly struggle to see. And that's always been the way with God. This is what the Apostle Paul reflects on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He reminds us that the cross itself, the very heart of the gospel, seems foolish to people, though it really is God's wise way to save us. Listen to some of the things he says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And he goes on to remind us that even the people God calls and uses seem foolish to the world, but this is God's wise and powerful plan. Listen again. Brothers, Paul says, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And the story of Genesis in general, and Genesis 38 in particular, is a story that's entirely consistent with that pattern that Paul articulates in that chapter. It's a story of how God works out his purposes in ways that may seem foolish, yet which are flawlessly wise. And Genesis chapter 38 ought to remind us that our ability to judge the best way for God to do things is seriously impaired. That scarlet thread around Zerah's wrist is a testament to the limits of human wisdom. And I've even wondered, as I've reflected on this chapter, whether we should all get ourselves a piece of red ribbon to tie around our wrist as a constant reminder. Because there are plenty of times, aren't there, when we look at our, our lives and wonder what on earth God is doing. From our perspective, things aren't going to plan. We're not in the position we'd hope to be in. We're experiencing great grief or pain for some reason. Nothing seems to be working out the way we'd expect it or hope. And we ask ourselves, what's, what's God doing? And sometimes we go so far as to conclude that God must have left the building, that he's walked off the job. We, we think he's treating us badly and messing our lives up. And sometimes we even get angry with him. But it's at those moments in particular that we need to remember the limits of human wisdom. I wonder if wearing a red bracelet might jog our memories. God's ways may be unexpected, but they are always wise. 
We need to remember that the way we'd do things if we were God is not necessarily how God's doing things. We need to remember that we don't see the full picture. We need to remember that God works in the most unexpected ways. We need to remember that invisible is not the same as absent. God hasn't left the building and he hasn't walked off the job. He's caring for us in his impeccable wisdom. He's fulfilling his beautiful purposes in our lives within the ugliness. It's just that we can't always see it because there are limits to our wisdom, limits to what we know and can discern. And, of course, this is what's happening in Genesis 38 as well. God is fulfilling his beautiful purposes within the ugliness. It's hard to see. In fact, at the time, it was impossible for those involved to see it. But the ultimate beautiful purpose for which God was working in this chapter is caught up in the ministry of Jesus. And and this is the fourth thing to say tonight about the divine story in Genesis 38. This is a chapter about the ancestors of Christ. And in terms of the whole Bible, this may be the ultimate answer to why this chapter is here. Because through the rest of the Old Testament, you can trace the fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham, not through Joseph, but through Judah. Through the rest of the Old Testament, we discover that it's Judah and his son Perez who lead us to the great King David and ultimately to King Jesus. And the culmination of this comes in Matthew chapter 1 at the very beginning of the New Testament's first gospel. We read it before. Judah and Tamar and Perez are in Jesus' family tree. Who would have thought? And when we get to Revelation chapter 5, we discover there that the triumphant Jesus the one who died for his people and rose again, is identified by his relationship to the main character of Genesis chapter 38. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Staggering. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Yet through this one of Jacob's 12 sons, the selfish Sexually immoral, irresponsible Judah. Astonishing. This is the wisdom of God. This is the righteousness and the mercy of God. And surely that tells us something about how sinners like us might be caught up in the righteous mercy of God too. So why is Genesis chapter 38 here? Is it just a break in the narrative? Well, no, it's not. It's here in part because this isn't just the story of Joseph. It's the account of Jacob and his sons, as we saw back in chapter 37, verse 2. This is the account of God fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And the characters on view in this chapter turn out to be critical in those promises being realised. And the action of this chapter happens in history straight after the events of chapter 37. So that's the best place for this important chapter to go. 
and it may well be here for a number of other reasons as well, but chiefly it seems to be here because it shows us again what this family is like, that God has chosen to bless and to use to bless the world. So it's not so much a break in the narrative as a narrative about the broken. Chapter 38 reminds us just how colourful this colourful family are. If you're in any doubt after chapter 37 that this is a family of foolish and ugly sinners, then surely chapter 38 puts paid to that once and for all. Those God is choosing to save and use can only be saved and used by his sheer mercy. And chapter 38, like chapter 37, speaks to sinners like us and reminds us that if God can save and redeem and use people like Judah and Tamar, then he can certainly save and redeem and use people like us. Such is his mercy. And indeed, that's what he's doing. In the context of the whole Bible, we can see how God was at work in Genesis 38 to make something beautiful out of the ugliness And we know that the God who was at work then is at work in our lives too, making something beautiful out of the mess because nothing is impossible for God. Before coming down here, uh, my family and I stayed up at Port Stewart for a couple of days and yesterday we we drove along the coast in the glorious Irish sunshine from Port Stewart to a little village called Ballygally. That's how I'm going to pronounce it anyway. Where we stopped for lunch, we, uh, we all had lunch in an old castle there. And, and before we ate, I had a little look around and discovered a, a doorway in the castle. Some of you might have been there with the date 1625 engraved over the arch. And under the date was this inscription. God's providence is my inheritance. What a, what a wonderful testimony. God's providence is my inheritance and it stood there for almost 400 years. Genesis 38 has rested in our Bibles for much, much longer and its message is the same. God's providence, his sovereign control of our world and our lives is our hope, is our inheritance. His ways may seem strange or mysterious to us. They, they may be unexpected but they are always flawlessly wise. And may it be that the testimony of Genesis 38 hangs like an inscription over our lives too. God's providence is my inheritance. He is taking our colourful lives and in his providence making something beautiful because nothing is impossible for God. And no one is impossible for God. No matter how much of a mess we may think we've made of our lives. We know that's true because Jesus has died for us and has risen again. We know that's true because the one who has the world and its future in his hands is the triumphant lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, Judah. Let me read those verses as I finish. Apostle John writes of his vision, Revelation chapter 5. 
And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Why don't you take a moment to reflect, perhaps to pray privately, and in a few moments I'll, I'll lead us.